This week, Bloomberg News published a story about the documents Donald Trump had sent down to Mar-a-Lago at the end of his presidency. The story went into some detail about who packed the boxes containing those documents. And I'm going to spoil the ending here by telling you that it was the White House, not the General Services Administration, the GSA, that packed those boxes, which is counter to what Donald Trump has insisted for several months now. And it is maybe not surprising, given the other wild claims he has made in the course of this whole Mar-a-Lago saga. But accompanying that Bloomberg story was a picture of the document boxes that were sent down to Trump's beach club. This is it right here. Look at that. I don't know about you, but the first thing I thought when I saw that photo was, wow, that is a lot of documents. I mean, we've seen some of the documents that were found in the FBI search of Mar-a-Lago laid out on the floor in evidence photos like this one right there. But the sheer volume of the paper on this giant green pallet, these giant pallets, these wooden pallets wrapped in green plastic wrap, that is just really something. Now, we know that not all of these papers belong to the government. Some of them could legitimately be Trump's. Maybe he wrote a lot of poetry while he was in office. I don't know. And yeah, the FBI has already reclaimed quite a bit of paper from Trump's possession, more than 11,000 government documents, more than 300 of which were classified, dozens of which were marked as secret, and more than a dozen of which were marked top secret. But still, just thinking about those pallets stacked high with boxes, which were presumably filled with papers, and you really have to wonder, did the FBI get everything? 11,000 documents is a lot, but it's pretty clear that Donald Trump took a pretty staggering amount of paper with him when he left office. Well, now we seem to have an answer to that question. Today, NBC News confirmed the New York Times reporting that the FBI has reason to believe that President Trump is still withholding even more government documents. They don't have them all. Even after all this, the letters and the sworn statements and the subpoenas and the search warrants, It seems, at least to the Department of Justice, that there are still government documents in Donald Trump's possession. And then a few hours ago, Rolling Stone came out with this bombshell reporting. Federal investigators have asked multiple witnesses if they knew whether former President Trump had stashed any highly sensitive government documents at either Trump Tower in Manhattan or at his private club in Bedminster, New Jersey. Now, NBC News has not yet independently confirmed that reporting, but Rolling Stone sources it to one person familiar with the matter and another person who's been briefed on the situation. So possibly more papers, possibly at other locations. And now it seems the Department of Justice has a very big decision to make. As The New York Times put it, Mr. Trump's apparent reluctance so far to cooperate puts the department in the fraught position of having to decide from among an array of difficult choices, including whether to give up on trying to obtain the documents, issuing a subpoena for them, obtaining another search warrant, or pushing for Mr. Trump to attest under oath that he has handed over all the materials in his possession. Unfortunately, I am not and never have been a state or federal prosecutor, but at least to me, all of these choices seem pretty tricky. What does the Department of Justice do here? Luckily, we have just the expert to help us answer that very question. Joining us now is Barbara McQuaid, former U.S. attorney for the Eastern District of Michigan and an MSNBC legal analyst. Barb, thanks for being here tonight. Thanks for having me, Alex. So, dare I say, none of these options seem like the clear-cut winner, right? Subpoena, search warrant, get Trump to make a statement under oath, or just give up on the whole thing. Is one 
preferable in your mind? Yeah, I, I think, Alex, in, you know, human nature here would be to just let this go. My gosh, Donald Trump fights like an animal over everything. Who in their right mind would want to take on the circus that comes with any dispute with Donald Trump? But if you work for the government, you have an obligation to serve the interests of the people and the country. And so to the extent they have a belief that Donald Trump still retains some of these government classified documents, they have an obligation to get them back. Now, in some scenarios, you would do one of the options you just said there, which was get a signed declaration from the person to attest that they have no more documents. And then, you know, most people would take that as a very serious and somber uh, declaration. And they would know that if anything should turn up later, they would have some very serious legal consequences. I think with Donald Trump, you just can't believe him. And so I think it sounds like it makes sense what the Justice Department is doing, which is trying to develop probable cause to determine whether they, they can they can prove that some of these documents may be stored at either Trump Tower or Bedminster, in which case they can just get a search warrant and go in and get them, which is what they did at Mar-a-Lago. And so that might be the path of re- least resistance here. But of course, they need probable cause before they can do that. Do you have a sense of how or why they think there are more documents at this juncture? Do you read the tea leaves on this? And is this witness testimony? I mean, how would you think they have this information at this point? I think, Alex, they have an inventory of what classified documents were created. When you have a printed document that is a classified document, usually that means there was a classified document that was created on a classified server. And so ordinarily, these are digital documents. And so there may have been a printout that was shared with Donald Trump that he has a copy of. And so they know what's out there. And so if there is something that is missing, they keep track of these things. It isn't like they just spread them around without documenting who has what. And so it makes sense to me that they have a log and they know what's still missing. Also, they had all of those empty uh, manila folders that they found at Mar-a-Lago that said that they had previously contained classified documents. So my guess is they have an inventory. They know what's missing. And so they're wondering where it might be. And so asking witnesses whether they have knowledge that it may be stored at Bedminster or at Trump Tower could provide the probable cause necessary to obtain a search warrant and go in and get them. Why did why did the DOJ tell Trump's lawyers, this is part of the New York Times reporting, that a top DOJ official told Trump's lawyers he doesn't believe Trump has returned all the sensitive documents? What's the necessity in terms of telling Trump's legal team here? I think because they really just want them back. You know, sometimes there's strategy to be employed, gamesmanship, because you're involved in litigation, you want to get the upper hand and you want to win the case. Here, I think the the real truth is they just want these documents back. Now, maybe it'll result in criminal charges for Donald Trump, but these are the crown jewels of the intelligence community. And having these documents fall into the wrong hands can cause, by definition, exceptionally grave harm to the national security of the United States. So they most desperately want to get these documents back. And so no gamesmanship, uh, just going straight to Donald Trump's lawyers and saying, does he have these documents? We very much want them back. Do you think that this intersects at all with the whole special master process in terms of what the DOJ can access or not access um, pending that review? It might. You know, it's difficult to know exactly what's going on. But I think one difficulty of the orders that Judge Cannon has issued is she has said that they may conduct a national security assessment as to the damage that has occurred because of Donald Trump's retention of these documents. Um, But uh, they may not 
conduct a criminal investigation unless it is absolutely necessary to that first part of the intelligence assessment. I think one worry I would have if I were a prosecutor handling this case is that I would do something, for example, show documents to a witness or uh, use them in a grand jury proceeding, and then find out later that Judge Cannon or some other judge found that I had run afoul of her order by doing so. And as a result, it tainted the whole case. And although I obtained a conviction against Donald Trump, it now must be thrown out. That's the worst case scenario. So my guess is they are proceeding with great caution in terms of what they are showing to other witnesses. And so it is possible that they have to go this route to avoid running into problems later by being accused of violating the order that she has uh, issued now. Yeah, that complicates literally every step of this. I mean, the other part of this, Barb, is we're talking about a situation in which feasibly the FBI would have to conduct a raid on two of the president's, uh, former president's other residences, right? I mean, and we know what Trump has done politically with the raid on Mar-a-Lago, used it as a fundraising tool and a, a political cudgel against the Biden administration and the Department of Justice. The implications of the DOJ going after documents at Bedminster on, and Trump Tower, I mean, I would imagine that that is the very last thing Merrick Garland would want to have to do. I, I think that's right, Alex. You know, re remember that Merrick Garland was selected for this position in an effort to restore the independence of the Department of Justice and the public perception that it engages in partisan politics. So the last thing he wants to do is be accused of raiding Donald Trump's home or his golf club. Um, and there's an, also a legal uh, obstacle here, which is it's not enough to say some of the documents are still missing. We get to go search his homes. You have to show probable cause to believe that he is retained the documents and that they will be found at those particular locations, which probably explains why they're asking witnesses specifically about whether the documents are at those particular locations. So they're, they're going to do everything in their in their responsibility to find these documents. Um, it is an unenviable task, but it explains why they're asking witnesses about these things. And if they can gather enough evidence to establish probable cause, I think they will bite the bullet and go in get a search warrant and get them. Wow. Merrick Garland, a nation turns its lonely eyes to you. Barbara McQuaid, former U.S. attorney for the Eastern District of Michigan. Thank you as always, Barb, uh, for your wisdom on this Friday evening. Thanks very much, Alex. We have lots more to get to tonight. Another day, another damning allegation of hypocrisy leveled against Georgia GOP Senate candidate Herschel Walker. There are three new stories out in the last few hours with blockbuster details. The reporter who broke one of those stories joins us next. And coming author and activist Heather McGee joins me to discuss a growing trend in GOP politics, labeling those who call out structural racism the racists. Stay with us. Hey everyone, it's MSNBC's Chris Hayes. For the first time since 1892, we have an election in which both candidates have presidential records. It's a chance to take a hard look at what Joe Biden and Donald Trump have actually done as president. On a special Why Is This Happening podcast series called With Pod 2024 The Stakes, I'm talking to experts about the two candidates' records on specific policy areas like immigration, taxes, climate, and more. So you know what's at stake come November. Search for Why Is This Happening and follow. 
Stay up to date on the biggest issues of the day with the MSNBC Daily Newsletter. Each morning, you'll get analysis by experts you trust, video highlights from your favorite shows. 2024 is now truly the most important election in the history of our country. Previews of our podcasts and documentaries, plus written perspectives from the newsmakers themselves, all sent directly to your inbox each morning. Get the best of MSNBC all in one place. Sign up for MSNBC Daily at msnbc.com. There is more fallout tonight in the campaign of embattled Georgia Republican Senate candidate Herschel Walker. First, today we learned that Walker has fired his political director in the wake of revelations that the resolutely anti-abortion candidate had paid for the abortion of an ex-girlfriend and mother to one of his children back in 2009. The removal of Walker's political director, Taylor Crow, one month before the midterm elections was the latest sign of a campaign that is desperately struggling to get back on track after a series of damaging revelations by the Daily Beast rocked his campaign campaign this week. As recently as Wednesday, Walker himself denied even knowing the identity of the woman who was accusing him of paying for an abortion. But we have new revelations tonight that make that stance increasingly hard to support. A short time ago, the Daily Beast published this headline, Herschel Walker's wife reaches out to his accuser. The two women, the wife and the anonymous accuser, reportedly communicated by text message today. Quote, the woman asked Blanchard, that would be Herschel Walker's wife, if she had previously known about the abortion or if she had known that Herschel Walker had also said it wasn't the right time to have a child when they conceived it three three years later. Instead of directly answering the woman's question about the abortion, Blanchard wrote that this makes me incredibly sad and claimed she continually tried to build a better, bridge a better relationship between the estranged family members. Okay, so also tonight, the woman at the center of this week's revelation has spoken to The New York Times, telling the paper that Walker asked her to undergo not one but two abortions. Here's a lead of that story. A woman who has said Herschel Walker, the Republican Senate nominee in Georgia, paid for her abortion in 2009, told The New York Times that he urged her to terminate a second pregnancy two years later. They ended their relationship after she refused. In interviews with The Times, she described the frustration of watching Republicans rally around Walker, dismiss her account, and bathe him in prayer and praise, calling him a good man. The woman, whose identity is being withheld by The Times at her request, told The Times she wants Georgia voters to know what kind of man Herschel Walker was to her. Quote, as a father, he's done nothing. He does exactly what the courts say, and that's it, she said. He has to be held responsible, just like the rest of us. And if you're going to run for office, you need to own your life. Now, while Walker continues to deny reports of paying for an abortion, which NBC hasn't independently corroborated, his opponent, Democratic Senator Raphael Warnock, has studiously avoided tagging his campaign rival. This afternoon in Macon, Georgia, Senator Warnock was asked by reporters why he refuses to make political hay out of his opponent's struggles. Senator, most candidates in your position would use these latest allegations against your (coughs) opponent, Herschel Walker, to their political advantage as political ammunition. Why haven't you done that? Well, I think that the people of Georgia have an opportunity to look at his record and to look at mine and be very clear. There is a stark difference between the two of us. And uh, the difference, the differences between me and my opponent couldn't be more obvious. Uh, I think that we have uh, uh, seen some disturbing things. We've seen 
a disturbing pattern, and it raises real questions about who's actually ready to represent the people of Georgia in the United States Senate. Okay, and breaking just literally minutes ago, Herschel Walker has now acknowledged for the first time the identity of the woman who he who claims he paid for her to have an abortion 13 years ago. But he is also claiming to NBC's Mark Caputo that today was the first time the woman ever mentioned to him, to Herschel Walker, that she had had an abortion. Okay, so Herschel Walker is saying this is the first time he has heard about this abortion. He is confirming the identity of the woman, but he is saying he had no knowledge that she sought to terminate the pregnancy. Joining us now is the author of the initial New York Times story, Maya King. She is a politics reporter who covers the South for the paper. And oh, what a time it is to be a reporter covering the Walker campaign. Maya, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. So let's let me just get your reaction to our NBC reporting here. Herschel Walker is confirming that he knows this woman, but is essentially saying, I had no idea that she ever had an abortion, undermining the story and potential evidence that the woman has presented thus far, and also in direct opposition to your reporting, which is that Herschel Walker asked the woman not only to get one abortion, but two abortion. What is your two abortions? What is your reaction to these latest claims from Herschel Walker himself? Well, he's also undermining his claims, even from Monday, that he never uh, knew this woman, that he never financed an abortion, that this was not something that he was totally aware of. And we've seen really from Monday until just moments ago, the ways that this story has unraveled, um, but also the ways that Walker has begun to tell the truth of the situation. Of course, our reporting Um, documents provided to us at the New York Times and conversations with this woman show that Mr. Walker was very aware um, exactly of what the circumstances were surrounding her decision to have an abortion. In fact, that it was a decision that both of them made together. And, you know, this is obviously a very private matter between the two of them. It's not something you normally see covering a campaign. But, you know, I want to underline the fact that what matters here is the the hypocrisy in the situation. The fact that Walker has said repeatedly um, that he is pro-life, that he is against abortion, that he endorses an abortion ban with no exceptions, that he also has railed against uh, what he says is a trend of absentee fathers in black households. And now a reporting over several weeks and really just this week alone shows one that he has indeed uh, had an abortion or at least financed uh, women in his life to have abor- have an abortion. And two, that he has not exactly been an active father in the life of at least one of his children. I think what has been so um, surprising in all of this is the degree to which for every one of these claims that this unnamed woman has made, she has literally had the receipts to back them up. And now we know because of new reporting in the Daily Beast tonight, there are text messages between Julie Walker, Herschel Walker's wife, and this woman. Can you talk a little bit about that relationship? Because we know she and she's alleging that Herschel Walker didn't have much a relationship of a relationship with her child, but it appears that there was some back and forth between Herschel Walker's wife and this woman that extended over the years. Yes, and the woman has has told us, and we wrote in our story this evening that. Uh, Julie Blanchard, Herschel Walker's current wife, is really the person who has coordinated a lot of the payments, a lot of the 
communication between uh, the woman's son, Herschel Walker's son, the son that they share, um, and and with the family. And so Julie has has largely sort of been a go-between here. And I suppose what we could glean from now these text messages coming out is a sense uh, from folks in the campaign and also from Walker and his family uh, they would like to undercut the claims of of this woman by saying, "Look, like she has talked to us, um, and perhaps that you know she that they want to undercut her own credibility in the situation." Let me ask: Herschel Walker is reaching out to NBC News. This woman had been the unnamed woman had been speaking with the Daily Beast. Did she approach the New York Times? And and if she did, why do you think she did? Well, what I can say is that she was open to talking with the New York Times. What she wanted to talk to us about, she wanted to corroborate the details of the Daily Beast story to say that, you know, while folks in conservative circles are largely discrediting that report, saying the original report on Monday was wrong or that, you know, they were lying to uh, to vilify Herschel Walker unfairly. She wanted to talk to the New York Times to say, look, I want to go to a paper that people believe is credible um, to back up these claims and say, you know, that while she wants her identity to be to remain anonymous or private for the protection of her young son, she still would like the story out there um, on as big of a platform as possible and wanted to, to tell that story uh, with our newspaper. And, and for people who aren't familiar with the vetting process at The New York Times, when you're talking about uh, allegations like like these, could I mean, could give a sense of what it means to have these uh, claims printed in The New York Times in terms of the, the sort of background checks, if you will, that you need to do on these kinds of allegations? Absolutely. We cross checked her claims with court records. Uh, we tried to find as many documents as possible to uh, further underline the claim that she was making one of Herschel Walker's uh, indeed fathering her son um, of her undergoing the abortion procedure um, and of course of her identity. You know, obviously we've kept her identity private. We wanted to make sure though that she is who she says she is and have gone to great lengths to make sure and verify um, you know, that, that, that she is indeed, you know, not just any person and that her identity is real um, and that she is indeed the, the mother of, of Herschel Walker's child, that they did have a relationship while she was living in Atlanta. We also spoke with people who knew her while she was living in Atlanta. Um, and, we, and we reached out to the Walker campaign multiple times and people in Herschel Walker's circles, people who we knew had worked with the campaign either in a current capacity or in the past to ask them to respond to these claims. Of course, saying, pointing out that on Monday, this report has already been made. Really what we're doing here is underlining and corroborating a report that already exists. The campaign uh, did not respond to our requests but indeed did uh, reach out to NBC to confirm a lot of what we've reported and also push it further through text messages and an email or excuse me, in an interview uh, with Herschel himself. It just it bears mentioning that Herschel Walker's position on this has changed a lot over the course of this saga. Uh, at first, it was not, that didn't happen. I don't know her. Then it was there's nothing to be ashamed of. Now it's I know her, but I didn't know about the abortion. Uh, the person who has all the facts and evidence on her side thus far is the woman that claims Herschel Walker paid for her an abortion. Maya King, politics reporter covering the South for The New York Times. Great reporting, Maya. Thanks for your time tonight. Thank you. 
Still ahead here tonight, a new chapter in the shameless Republican political stunt involving vulnerable migrants. We have new reporting directly from the front lines. That's coming up next. Stay with us. MSNBC is going to be live here all night. Today's news requires more facts. Palestinians and Israelis are blaming each other for the tragedy that has inflamed the region. More analysis. Most of the states with the worst rates of gun deaths are ones where Republicans control the state government. And more perspective. This is not just about women and pregnant people in Texas. This is about people across this country. The world's never been harder to understand. That's why it's never been more important to try. MSNBC. Understand more. On the MSNBC podcast, How to Win 2024, political experts, former Senator Claire McCaskill and Democratic strategist Jennifer Palmieri examine the campaign strategies unfolding in this all-important election. The focus is on the voters that are not necessarily in your corner now. If Democrats are going to win in 2024, we have to be able to explain what is happening at the border and what the solutions are. Search for How to Win 2024 wherever you get your podcasts. New episodes every Thursday. Fellow New Yorkers, we are in a crisis situation. New York City now has more than 61,000 people in our shelter system. That includes thousands of New Yorkers experiencing homelessness and thousands of asylum seekers who have been bussed in over the past few months from other parts of the country. This is a humanitarian crisis that started with violence and instability in South America. And it is being accelerated by American political dynamics. Thousands of asylum seekers have been bussed into New York City and simply dropped off without notice, coordination, or care. Today, the mayor of New York City, Eric Adams, declared a state of emergency. The city's homeless shelters are in crisis. The reason for this can be found in the state of Texas, where the Republican governor, Greg Abbott, has been engaging in a political stunt for several months now. He's been busing thousands of migrants and asylum seekers to Democratic-run cities, refusing to give them notice or to coordinate with city officials and intentionally overwhelming the shelter system, all while endangering thousands of people who are really just looking for safety in America, using human beings as pawns to essentially own the libs. Mayor Adams said that so far, more than 17,000 migrants have arrived in New York City since April, and now he's desperate for help from state and federal governments. Adams is not alone in this. A month ago, the Democratic mayor of Washington, D.C., Muriel Bowser, she declared a public emergency for the same reason. Governor Abbott and Arizona Governor Doug Ducey, also a Republican, they've been busing thousands of asylum seekers to that city to create chaos. Even Florida Governor Ron DeSantis has joined in on the game flying about 50 migrants to Martha's Vineyard with no notice. For people who have watched all of this from afar, it's become a national outrage. But despite that, despite the strain on city systems and the legal challenges and the calls for federal investigations and just the staggering cruelty of this whole thing, these Republican political stunts are not slowing down. Just yesterday, another bus carrying about 50 migrants from Texas arrived outside of Vice President Kamala Harris's D.C. residence. That's the second time in a month. In September, a bus carrying about 100 asylum seekers and migrants stopped outside of her house. And today, we spoke to one of the men who was on one of those first buses in September. His name is Alfredo. 
We are not reporting his full name for the sake of his privacy and his security, but Alfredo began his journey from the U.S. to the U.S. from Venezuela months ago, walking by foot through eight different countries to reach the American border in Texas. Can you first tell me why you left Venezuela? I worked with the government of Venezuela, and I witnessed the government do things that I don't think they had to do. And I denounced them, and that caused me problems. And I had to rush out of the country in fear of my life. The Venezuelan government was going to take my life. Alfredo says that he passed through jungles with snakes and crocodiles. He says he saw the bodies of women with their children and bodies of the elderly. This journey was so harrowing, he says, that if someone's leg broke, they might not survive it. Along the way, Alfredo claims that he was shot at in Honduras and robbed by police in Mexico. By his estimation, he walked for 40 days. This is some of the footage from his journey. He got sores all over his legs and feet. As a diabetic, he had to inject himself with insulin, which he carried throughout his journey. There were moments, he told me, when he thought he would die. I asked Alfredo about his experience when he finally arrived in the U.S. at one of the detention centers in Governor Abbott's state of Texas. I don't like to talk about politics, but that man is a bad person because he treats us bad. They put us in a refrigerator, in a tent that's so cold, with no clothes, and they take away our documents and they take everything from us. To me, he's a bad person. God forgive me. What I'm saying is, I can't talk about politics, but that man, the position he has, he doesn't deserve because he just doesn't treat immigrants well. Alfredo was soon swept up in Governor Abbott's political stunt. He was placed on a bus bound for Vice President Harris's residence. Do you know about why you were sent to the vice president's home? Because the governor of Texas doesn't like Venezuelans, and he put them on buses. We were made to ride 40 hours without being able to use a restroom and without anything. He doesn't want anyone to stay in Texas. What he wants is to get them out of the state, and they sent us to Washington, D.C. Did someone tell you you would meet the vice president? What did they tell you when you got on the bus? No, they never told me I was going to meet the vice president. But they brought me from Texas to D.C., which was 40 hours of travel, and I thought, and my friend, that they would receive us, but who met us was a charity group, and they took us in. Alfredo and dozens of men, women, and children were dropped off outside the U.S. Naval Observatory in September at dawn, unannounced and with no one there to greet them. They stood there outside, holding the few belongings that they brought with them. After local charities and volunteers scrambled to make last-minute arrangements, they ended up at a local church. Eventually, those charities bought Alfredo a ticket to New York City, where he thought he might be better off. When Alfredo arrived at the Port Authority in New York City three weeks ago, he was greeted by members of an aid group named Team TLC, a grassroots organization that's been receiving the asylum seekers and helping them get set up. And Alfredo is now staying at one of the city-run homeless shelters, where he's met other migrants like him who fled to this country to escape violence and persecution. This twisted saga could end here, and it would be overwhelming. But in the last week, a new chapter has unfolded. Alfredo says that he and other migrants staying at that shelter have been asked by an undisclosed third party to help repair hurricane damage in the state of Florida, Governor Ron DeSantis' state. Now, America has had a long history of migrants leading cleanup efforts after natural disasters. But it has not had a long history of migrants being used as political pawns by governors in states that later need the help of those very same political pawns. 
Alfredo says many of his friends agreed to travel to Florida after they were offered $15 an hour plus housing and three meals a day, which sounds a lot better than what they've been offered thus far, which is basically nothing. But that, too, might be a pretty big risk for these migrants because they're paid off the books. And historically, migrants have been victims of wage theft while working on recovery efforts. And Alfredo, having been through this just extraordinary ordeal, aware of the degree to which his life has become part of a sick political stunt, he chose not to go down to Florida. Why didn't you go to Florida? Because in reality, my destination was New York. I know they're working too, but me, I thought these might have been fake people that would put me to work and then possibly not pay me and exploit my work. That's what I thought. Even in the best case scenario here, the migrants are actually able to get paid for their work rebuilding the state of Florida. There is still a potentially massive legal concern. Many of them are awaiting immigration court dates here in New York that will determine when they can legally work in the U.S. An off-the-books job could end in deportation. Working in another part of the country might mean missing that court date here in New York, which could also end in deportation. So now you're separated from your family and you're seeking asylum in the United States. Your court date is in New York? Yes, my court date is here. It's the 2nd of November at 11 a.m. November 2nd is soon. For your friends who went down to Florida, do do you know where their court dates are? Are they in New York as well? I don't know for sure if they have court dates, but yes, they should have them right here in New York. I think they're probably also afraid because we are here practically like we're under arrest. We have freedom, but with conditions. I too am afraid that tomorrow or the next day, they want to deport or send me back to my country, and then they take my life. What I don't want to do is to go back to Venezuela, because it's certain they could execute me. Risking your life to come to the United States, only to be used in a political game by a Republican governor, and then risking it all again to help rebuild a state run by another governor who is all too keen to dehumanize you as well. That is what is happening with these asylum seekers, the ones crossing the border. That is what they have to tell their families about when they ask what life is like here in the United States. Have you talked to your wife? Have you told her what you've been through? And is, how does she feel about where you are? Yes, I speak to my wife every day. And in reality, it was a very tough experience. I tell her not to cross, but she wants to come here. And I want my family to be here with me too. So she's going to make the same journey I made. And hopefully, she comes soon. But she will make the same journey as me. And I feel bad because she will come alone and with my two daughters. And it will be tough for her. We'll be right back. The answer to why I wrote White Lives Matter on a shirt is because they do. It's the obvious thing. Yeah. Why, why do you think that's so, and, and I assume the implication is, of course, all lives matter because they're lives, because God created them. Yeah. Why do you think that that would be considered controversial? Because the same people that have stripped us of our identity and labeled us as a, as a color have told us what it means to be black. 
That was Kanye West on Fox News last night explaining the inexplicable, namely why he decided to wear a White Lives Matter shirt at his show during Paris Fashion Week. Kanye's stunt here highlights how the movement to address structural racism and inequality, Black Lives Matter, is somehow seen by conservatives as detrimental to the rest of society, that it somehow excludes or demeans or disenfranchises people who aren't black, namely white people. And nobody is happier to see Kanye West in a White Lives Matter shirt than Tucker Carlson, whose home network, Fox News, appears to believe that Black Lives Matter is somehow a racist organization. And that belief doesn't end with Kanye West and his T-shirts. It rests at the core of some very significant news this week. The idea that addressing structural inequality and racism is racist against white people. On Tuesday, a conservative law firm in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, filed a lawsuit to overturn President Biden's plan to cancel up to $20,000 in student loan debt for millions of borrowers. The suit argues that because the White House said the plan intends to help black students, borrowers and other borrowers of color, it has, quote, it has a, quote, improper racial motive. They add, by creating and implementing a federal program with an improper racial motive, defendants violated the Constitution's guarantee of equal protection of the laws, which, among other things, prohibits federal spending based on race. In other words, the federal government can't assist students and borrowers of color because white lives matter. That lawsuit was dismissed a few days later, but that law firm has announced its plans to appeal. And then there's what happened at the Supreme Court this week when Alabama's Solicitor General argued that the state couldn't possibly prioritize race in the creation of its congressional redistricting maps because considering race could hurt white voters. In other words, strike that part of the Voting Rights Act because white lives matter. The central idea here is zero-sum politics, and I have just the person to talk to about this. Her name is Heather McGee, and the book is called The Sum of Us, What Racism Costs Everyone and How We Can Prosper Together. I mean, Heather, my friend, I literally thought of you as I saw this week unfold. Tell me, in your view, based on the brilliant book that you have written, how and why the 14th Amendment is being used to sort of strike down uh, measures like the student loan cancellation that are intended to help historically disenfranchised groups of people? Well, there's a huge amount of political and therefore economic profit to be made by convincing white voters that anything that is good for other Americans, even and including them, is somehow a threat, right? The idea, the zero-sum idea that we can't all progress together, that in fact, progress for people of color must be a threat to white people. So take the student loans, for example. Who benefits from a an historic up to $20,000 in student loan debt being canceled. Well, 20 million borrowers, the vast majority of whom are working and middle-class people, the majority of whom are white. Does it attack the racial wealth disparity? Yes. Why? Not because black people are just so lazy that we borrow a lot, but because of a racial wealth divide that was created by public policy. A racial wealth divide, that means that today a black college graduate has less wealth on average than a white high school dropout. So the bottom line here is that these policies, the idea of having voting rights in the country where politicians don't pick their voters, but voters pick their politicians, the idea of having affordable college, it's good for everyone. And yet conservatives want to break a working class multiracial coalition to make white voters side with their color instead of their class. They want to profit economically from that rigged political system. And so they keep sort of hammering this point, this lie of the zero sum, that we can't all 
be beneficiaries of government in the public interest. I mean, you see that again at the Supreme Court, right, where we're talking about the Voting Rights Act and the idea of having a prosperous American democracy where the right to vote, where we enfranchise everyone, has now become some kind of like subconscious call to just enfranchise black voters, right? And, and, what I mean, we saw this play out in the 2020 election. Mail-in voting mm-hmm. also helps Republicans. Yeah, absolutely. And yet the process of enfranchising people to vote has become a partisan issue for, for Republicans. How do we unwind that? I mean, what is the argument that is to be made? Because the data clearly isn't convincing the GOP and conservatives. Yeah, it's really about raw power. But I think what we do is we make cross-racial movements. I just spent the last uh, six months going across the country yeah. telling stories for a podcast also called the sum of us, of people who actually break this loggerheads, right? They come together across lines of race. In Florida, an issue that has been, was born in Jim Crow, the lifetime ban on people with felony convictions voting, got a multiracial, bipartisan, 60-plus percent majority at the ballot saying, we don't want that vestige of Jim Crow. We think people who serve their time should be able to vote. This old piece of Jim Crow is holding back citizens all over Florida from being able to vote. And so it is possible. There is still in the country support for these ideas. Student loan cancellation, voting rights, the idea of, um, you know, being able to have nice things for everyone, (laughs) right? And yet that's why the right wing is so focused on this one element of the culture war to try to basically terrify white voters into thinking that anything good that the Biden administration does is somehow going to harm them. The Biden administration did make a major move on marijuana, the pardon basically of all federal offenses for the simple possession of marijuana, which got some bipartisan, at least Republicans were not vilifying that in the way that they have student debt. So there is hope here. Yeah, there is hope here. I mean, I think that has a lot to do with the fact that Koch brothers have been pushing for uh, this kind of, um, you know, kind of decriminalization. And that's a good thing. Listen, there's a lot of places in this country where black and white voters see eye to eye. And that is fundamentally terrifying to the Republican Party. It is um, it is not terrifying to me. And you can hear more about it on your fantastic podcast. Heather McGee, the author of The Sum of Us, What Racism Costs Everyone and How We Can Prosper Together. Thank you for making time to join us and listen to that absurd Kanye West interview. <laughs> Coming up at a debate tonight in the Republican Senate, Republican Senate candidate in the Republican Senate uh, race in North Carolina. Uh, our Republican candidate gave an interesting answer when asked to defend his 2020 vote to overturn the election. What he said is coming up next. Over half of the Republican nominees on the ballot for the House, Senate and statewide offices this November are election deniers. I'm sure you know that by now as a concept, but here is how that looks in practice. This is Republican Senate nominee Ted Budd at a North Carolina debate tonight. Do you stand by your vote not to certify the 2020 presidential electoral college vote for now President Biden? The core of that vote, the core of that vote, Tim, was to inspire more debate. Because I think debate is healthy for democracy. So that's what it led to. We didn't have the votes to overturn it. But of course, having the debate was a healthy thing. And um, I do stand by that vote. Denying the democratic outcome of an election is healthy for democracy. It is? I don't think so. Right now, that guy, Republican Ted Budd, is polling one point ahead of his Democratic competitor, Sherry Beasley. Every vote matters. 
That does it for us tonight. Rachel will be here on Monday, and I will see you here on Tuesday. And if you are looking for something to do this weekend, you can see a little other project I've been working on, which is very, very different than this one. I'm hosting a little project over at our friends on Netflix. It's called The Mole, and the first episodes drop today. That's all I got.